Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Catholic Truth Podcast, where we teach and preach unapologetically the Catholic faith, which has come down over 2,000 years from Jesus and the apostles. Sometimes on this show, we have guests, we have experts in their field, we have people who have written books, and people who have converted to the Catholic faith. And today, we have Leah Labresco Sargent, who is joining us, and she is a Catholic speaker, a writer, and an atheist convert. Uh, she was a pretty hardcore atheist blogger for a long time. She used to write for the Huffington Post, and in 2012, she shocked many by announcing her intention to become Catholic. And now she is a freelance writer, a blogger at leolabresca.com. And she is a speaker who has appeared on CNN and many national outlets just to discuss her conversion to the Catholic faith from rational atheist to Catholic. And she has written in two books and she loves to discuss topics of the faith. And it's my understanding that she used to love arguing with silly Christians who were just wrong about everything. Leah, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, and so, I, yeah, as I understand, you used to be a very rational atheist. You couldn't understand Christianity. You wouldn't understand why anyone would believe in a God. It didn't make any sense. There were too many rational, uh, really rational arguments out there that you didn't have to rely on a crutch called God. And uh, maybe you could start out by saying, you know, why were you an atheist in the first place? Did you become an atheist or did you grow up an atheist? My family was non-religious. I grew up in a community and a school that was pretty non-religious. So while some people might grow up in a faith and then reject it, you know, based on feeling like they have questions, it doesn't answer. You know, I was more someone who grew up without religion and didn't feel any need for it. I didn't feel like I had a God-shaped hole in my heart or that I had a question to which religion was the most parsimonious or elegant answer. I was intensely interested, obviously I still am as a Catholic, in how to live a good life and be a good person. I was interested in humanist philosophy as a way of answering that question. Yeah, you, you, how old are you now and what age did you start converting to the Catholic Church? So I'm 33 now, and I think the question of at what age did I start converting is a complicated one, because I think when the time when that process started, you know, was much earlier than when I noticed it started. And of course, okay. God was working in my life, my whole life, though not in ways that were perceptible to me as God. I'd say things really started in a bigger way when I went to college, because I joined a collegiate debating group that wasn't the kind of debate you might be familiar with, where you pick sides at random and argue to get uh, points or medals from a judge. We argued what we actually thought. And the only prize you could win was changing someone else's mind or having them change yours. And this is when I really met Christians who were really smart, who were committed to their faith. It wasn't just a cultural thing and who were up to explore it. And not even just as an evangelical thing, though, that was part of why they wanted to share their faith. They loved their faith. They loved the questions people had. You know, it would be as strange to them to not welcome questions as it would be if someone asked about a book or a movie you love not to you know, set aside an hour to talk about it. And before that time, uh, did you argue with a lot of Christians, um, you know, and kind of try to set them straight on their confusion? Or did you mostly keep it to yourself before you started debating there? I think in high school, I admired some of what are called the atheist horsemen of the apocalypse, folks like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. But I didn't actually know in person many of the kinds of Christians they were arguing with. I think those men kind of took as their target a lowest common denomination, uh, lowest common denominator American evangelicalism, you know, so that they could be making arguments like, you know, you say the Bible matters, but there are tensions within it. 
you're stuck, right? Versus I would talk to Catholics about that and then go, yes, like we have a whole hermeneutic of interpreting the Bible. We have sacred tradition as a way of working through this together. They didn't say you take every word literally by yourself. And if you get stuck, that must mean it doesn't work. Um, they had a real way of approaching the text as a naughty, you know, complicated, fruitful text. So you're an atheist in college and you join a debate team. You love debating with Christians. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and how that impacted you. Well, in some ways, what it told me is that I had to do more research in order to argue with my Christian friends. You know, the atheists I had read just weren't talking to the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends I was making. So I wanted to read more to better argue so I could argue with what my friends actually believe, not what I expected them to believe. I think there were three books that were really helpful to me. Uh, the first was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And it was helpful both in kind of laying out what Christians tend to believe um, and why, but it also meant a lot to me because the very opening part is just Lewis arguing for why morality is objective and transcendent. And that was something I believed as an atheist from the start. You know, and I found that to be so beautifully written. Lewis has such a clarity to his thought and his language that I felt like I could have pulled out the first chapter or two and used them as my own evangelical text, not for religion, but just for you know, moral realism against relativism. I found that I was starting to argue as much with some of my atheist friends who thought you couldn't say that morality was something real outside us versus a cultural construct, as I wanted to argue with my Christian friends about you know, where exactly morality came from. Yeah, and that that is a very interesting point because a large number of atheists don't believe in morality, and not an objective morality, or well, they don't believe in an objective free will, perhaps is a better way to say it. So I, I'm with Lewis on this. I think there's almost no one who doesn't believe in morality being real when it comes down to it. You might profess to not believe it, but Lewis says, you know, when you run into someone who's a moral relativist or a utilitarian, you know, someone who thinks that, moral rules don't matter, or they're about convenience or convention, he says just cut in front of them in line. And they won't say that goes against you know, our social contracts. So that's unfair. Um, that people have a deep sense of what's right and wrong and that those are meaningful categories. And it's the kind of thing where you have to be a pretty smart to talk yourself out of that. You have to be pretty smart to make that big a mistake because it's written on the human heart. It's as foundational to our understanding of the world as my belief that the physical world is real, that the moral world is real. Yeah, absolutely. So you, when you started wanting to argue with your um, Catholic friends, mm -hmm. you didn't really jump into the atheist books. You tried to jump into the Christian books to disprove them. And I ended up kind of bringing you back over to the other side. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things I got out of it, you know, I said, Lewis is one of the first books. G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy was the second book that meant a lot to me. And I think if Lewis kind of lays out the Christian project and the Christian worldview as this is pretty reasonable, it follows from some of the assumptions we all hold about the world, you know, you don't need to be afraid of Christians as irrational beasts. You know, they're actually very reasonable. They understand the world. You know, Chesterton is kind of someone who bursts through the window, like wild hair everywhere and goes, actually, Christians are pretty nuts. Um, but it was really helpful because I think it really crystallizes. Chesterton really puts forward, you can't be neutral about Christianity. You know, if it's true, you have to cleave to it entirely. It should reshape your entire life. And if it's false, you should work to destroy it. Mm. It's not something that's easy to tolerate. 
Christianity makes big claims about the world. And if they're false, they disorder our lives. And if they're true, they give order to our lives. And so I felt a kinship to Chesterton, even as an atheist. He and I agreed about what the stakes were. And then he really did a great job developing the the difficult ideas held in tension in Christianity of mercy and justice, of kind of family and stranger, um, and the way that Christianity holds to every good thing but puts them in right relation to each other versus outside the church. I think people struggle a lot with how to balance these different goods in relationship. It's easy to take one of them and make it an idol above everything else. And then even while trying to be good, you're led into serious moral error. Now, I'm curious, what uh, sort of arguments that did you used to use as an atheist to try to convert Christians or to try to, you know, kind of prove maybe that Christianity was wrong? What were some of your go-to <laughs> arguments? I mean, there were ones that I think Chesterton would have felt a sympathy to, which is just pointing to places where I thought the church was in error. Um, you know, questions about contraception or something else. Saying, if this is a true thing, why does it teach you things that I believe to be false? You know, and that in practice, it seems like maybe you believe to be false based on people's practice or their own commitments. So I think it makes sense to kind of push on, if your church demands something of you, do you live like you believe it? And if you don't, what does that mean about your faith or about whether you know these recommendations, these rules really came from an omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnibenevolent God or kind of came from people? Uh, so kind of pushing on those kind of practical moral questions, as well as, you know, making as much, uh, it wasn't just a pitch against what they believed as a pitch for what I believed, laying out, here's what I think about morality. I was very into deontology and Immanuel Kant. So, you know, here's a different way to order your life. What do you think? You know, argument can be a mix of kind of both trying to batter down each other's house, or also just opening the door to your own house and saying, do you want to come in? Would you like to live here? What would surprise you about living here? And I did that for my friends and they did that for me. Yeah, I find most atheists uh, today are not that um, gracious. <laughs> you know, most of them is just the bashing. Here's why you're wrong. Your God doesn't exist. You're a bunch of fools. You know, I mean, this is more of the immature atheism, but it's a large majority of atheism. I mean, it's not more of the rational thing. You know, they're like, you know, well, <clears throat> there's no proof that God exists. And I'll, I usually just ask them, well, what proof have you studied? How many books have you read by a theist? What were their names? And, you know, what was your problem with them? And usually they say, oh, I don't need to read books. I just know it's wrong. There's no evidence. And I'm like, you're not open to the truth. You're just trying to, either you don't want to believe, or you're just trying to bash something down without proof yourself. And that's not helpful. You need to read both sides. My shelves and this side and the other sides of the room are filled with both sides. I don't know if you can see in the back side under that light up there. That's mm -hmm. my whole atheistic shelf from Richard Dawkins to Sam Harris to all of the good ones, you know, and I've read both sides. I was like, you atheists most times have not, and you need to just be open and be open to where the truth leads. And it's really sad today that many people on both sides really don't study it and don't make the case where here's why I think you're wrong, but here's also why I think I'm correct. Here's the evidence I have. Now, nowadays it's just, oh, well, the evidence the burden of evidence is on you. I don't need to do anything. I just need to sit back and be comfortable being right and victorious in my atheism. <laughs> I think I think I'm unusual or I'm part of what's a growing trend of growing up as an atheist. But for a lot of folks, especially who come to a fight with a chip on the shoulder, you know, their experience at the other side is living it, you know, of growing up in a 
family that's at least ostensibly religious that may have poor catechesis that may have responded to questions not with you know the way my dominican friar friends do of every question about god is a chance to know him better but asking questions means you're disobedient or already unfaithful mm-hmm. so i think people are kind of formed by how they're brought up in the faith and a lot of people receive such bad formation that it feels like they've really explored the best of what there was to see and it was unsatisfying now we may have that, better treasures to offer right. them but i think you know sometimes that sense of i've heard what i need to hear already that's a good faith response. That's from someone who did ask the people around them growing up, people they trusted and received unsatisfactory answers or received kind of a cudgeling for asking at all. I think that's a very good answer. I think you're very right about that. I was one of those people who was very angry that I didn't get good answers. I had good questions and everyone told me just to believe. Everybody told me, oh, we just have to have faith. God's a mystery. And that's, I just literally made a, I think two videos ago, we just made a first of a seven-part series on how to reach our youth, teens, young adults. And the first part was answer their questions. Stop telling them just to believe. But literally, mm-hmm. actually, they have good questions. If we give them good answers, they're not going to walk away. It'll be a puzzle that just falls into place, all the pieces, and it'll make sense to them. But if we don't answer their questions, they're going to say, no, it doesn't make sense. I knew it didn't make sense. My friends have been telling me that you can't give me any good answers. Now I know that it doesn't make sense. So I think you're right about that for sure. And we do need to get back to a good, some good evangelization, catechesis, apologetics, and all of that for sure. I think it could be hard if a friend of yours asks you a question you genuinely don't know the answer to or feel uncomfortable speaking about to avoid kind of pushing them away because you're you're frightened of saying, oh, I, I don't know. And then they'll go, well, if you don't know, how dare you believe? I often think of myself more as a switchboard than a full encyclopedia. I don't know everything there is to know about religion. But if someone asks me a question I don't know the answer to, I can tell them what I do when I have a question I'm wrestling with. Where do I go in patristics? Where do I go just to a friendly priest who's up to talk to someone who may know more than I do? And sometimes I have the answer offhand. But for any kind of deep subject, no one person knows everything off the top of their head. And we kind of sell God short if we treat him as a shallow field of study where every casual person might know everything there is to know. Right. <laughs> very, very true. And that goes to both sides, the atheistic side as well, um, because they make you seem like, oh, well, if you don't have all the answers, then you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas they don't know all the answers either, but they claim to somehow know. Um, in most cases, many will say they don't know, but that's more agnosticism. Neither here nor there. But it sounds like you focused less, and I could be wrong, less on science and more on the moral aspect of this. And so you're in college arguing about the moral aspects with atheists and Christians. So how did you kind of cross the bridge? What really helped you to cross that? I think it was, it, I like your analogy of a bridge. I think it was being built from both sides, essentially. As I learned more about Christianity in order to argue with my friends, I had a better understanding of what it was. So growing up, I thought Christianity was kind of internally incoherent. It didn't hold together. It refuted itself. And as I learned more, I thought it did hold together. I just didn't think it was true. You can read a really well-written sci-fi or fantasy novel and go, this is a well-realized world. I believe in it, but it's, it's not a real world. And that's how I felt about Christianity. I thought it held together, but wasn't alive. And when it came to my own atheism, you know, I wanted to invite people into my house. And that meant looking around, seeing what needed patching up, what needed replacing. And what I struggled with was I had a very strong I believe both then and now accurate sense that morality was something real, something we 
uncover like archaeologists and receive, not something we build ourselves like architects. And the question was really for me, how do I come to have knowledge of this? I know the physical world through my senses, right? I can see things and I know how I can see them. I see them with my eyes. I may not understand all the physics and biology of optics, but I trust that other people do. The system seems to hold together. And if you said, how is it you go around asserting you see things visually? I'd go, I, I think that question's pretty well settled. But when I had these questions about morality, how is it I perceive, you know, we talk about a conscience as a almost a sensing organ like the eye, you know, but where is it? How do I know I have it? How do I know it's accurate? Those were the questions I was wrestling with as an atheist philosophically. I didn't think I needed Christianity to solve them, but I also knew that my own answers weren't satisfactory yet, and I was trying to work to refine them. And so for me, it was kind of building that bridge from both directions of really seeking to know how I knew what was true and what was good, and of getting more and more of a sense of the fact that Christianity worked as long as God at the center of it was true. And have you found since those times that Christianity has kind of answered those questions? Have you found that the God question makes uh, a lot more sense than not? Well, that was really the turning point for me. I was arguing with a friend late at night about some of these questions about how do I come to have knowledge of something that's transcendent when I myself am not transcendent? How do I come to you know, snatch at morality without having a way to build a ladder up myself? Um, and it was kind of in that argument where I was going through all the different ways I'd thought about for how to kind of extend from the physical world up to the metaphysical world, up to the transcendent world that I just kept feeling didn't actually hold up. My friend asked me, you know, just to think about a different way of thinking about it instead of rehearsing the arguments I found unsatisfying. And I blurted out, you know, without really thinking about it, I guess morality just loves me or something. And for me, that was kind of the keystone in the bridge, the thing that connected the two sides, that if I had knowledge of the good and I didn't have a way of explaining how I reached it by my own efforts, but I was sure I had it, then the movement must come from the other side, an offering, not a taking. Uh, and once I'm talking about it that way, morality, you know, the form of the good, I had some Platonist leanings, not being just this inert rule book that I read through, but as something that acts in the world, I know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about God. God is goodness that acts, right? Um, God is in Christ the transcendent that comes to inhabit mortality, that comes to us in a form we can recognize and speak with and walk with and eat with, that creates that bridge where we couldn't cross over ourselves. So for me, it was that moment that kind of locked both things into place, that kind of answered why there were these holes in my own philosophy and took this, I thought, inert imaginary philosophy and made it alive and moving and real. And... Um, for our audience, could you explain what objective morality is? We keep throwing around the term objective morality. What does that mean? You no, know, one way of putting it is objective reality is what remains true, whether you believe in it or not. It doesn't require your assent to be true. But when you assent to it, when you build your life around what's real, your life itself becomes truer. You know, I can deny the reality of the table I've got this laptop resting on. Um, but the laptop's held up either way. And if I try and put the laptop down where there's just space, it'll fall. Similarly, you know, I can be in error about the moral law. I can try and act that are in ways that are wrong or disordered while believing them to be correct. 
my belief won't make them good and they won't spare me the consequences of acting badly. Morality is just as real and just as secure, you know, unaffected by my own whims and desires as the physical world is, more so even. And so that's why it's so urgent to come to know it well, because to act accurately in the world, I have to know what's true. Yeah, so so something, I guess, like the famous case, like uh, torturing innocent children is always wrong. Even if someone thinks it's correct, that doesn't mean it's correct. It's, mm-hmm. it's still wrong. There's an objective reality about it. Cheating on your spouse is always wrong for kind of, <laughs> well, well, for a situation I think more people face, right? Like it's easy to mm-hmm. look at some of the extremes and go, well, yeah, I wouldn't go that far. But then there are lots of small choices that we make about cheating, about lying, um, about gossiping, even at the small level, where you know, telling stories about someone else that aren't yours to tell to an audience you shouldn't tell them to, to feel important, is always wrong. It might be smaller scale in terms of its harm, but it doesn't become less wrong for that. And do you write about these things on your blog? I do. I do. I often write, particularly in my Substack, otherfeminisms.substack.com, about the particular ways women move through the world in a world that sometimes denies the reality of being a woman. What do you mean the reality of being a woman? I think our culture often treats women like we're defective men. It happens kind of at the very... (laughs) Basic scale, um, a lot of tools, shelves, cars even are sized for the average male body and not the woman's body or not able to be adjusted. And then you wind up with issues uh, that women get injured more severely in car accidents for the wrong distance from the airbag because the world is just not sized for women. Women are treated as weirdly stunted men rather than people in our own right who should move through a world that accommodates us. But you see it even more starkly in the way we respond to female fertility, where that's treated as a problem in women, uh, something that makes us worse at being men. And the ideal would be for women to, by default, not be able to conceive, not be able to bear a child. And contraception and abortion are ways of solving the problem of women being women, of being bad men, in essence. Very interesting. And that's lealabresco.com, L-I-B-R-E-S-C-O, for anyone who's interested. Of course, we'll put it down below. But before we go, um, maybe you could tell us about your experience of being a Christian since you've become a Christian, as opposed to being an atheist beforehand. You still like to discuss, you still like to debate. But I mean, as far as like feeling fulfilled, you know, happy, like if have all your, you know, all your I's are dotted, your T's are crossed, do you feel like, you know, you're in a better place now with all the holes more filled? Yeah. You know, I have a better sense of what the world is. I find that, you know, when you live against the grain of the world, things are harder um, because you're kind of working against what's true. You're putting your laptop down in empty air, but morally. Um, So some things go better when I just have a truer understanding of the world. I'm still pretty ornery and prone to arguments that hopefully are inviting and fruitful for others. You introduced me as a very rational atheist, and I hope I'm a very rational Christian as well, because God gave us our intelligence primarily to know him better. And now I'm still asking questions. I'm still wrestling with texts. They're just often different questions and different texts. And I think in both cases, you know, asking questions, philosophy is a love affair. I thought it was with truth abstractly when I was an atheist. And now I'm in a love affair of philosophy with someone who loves me back more perfectly than I love him. 
And that's the most amazing thing is that when you have a relationship with God, things make sense still. They make more sense, but they're still rational. And I think that's one of the big misconceptions of atheism is that Christianity is not rational. It's just faith. And faith is just this blind belief where you don't have any evidence. You just believe. And in fact, I give confirmation retreats all over the country. And uh, the first question I ask them is, why do you believe in God? Mm -hmm. And they they don't have any good answers usually, which is sad, going back to the lack of catechesis. And they say, well, you just you know have to believe, or my parents told me so, or faith. And I said, well, what is faith? And they always say, well, it's believing in something you can't see. Not really. I mean, the, I mean, if you have an uninformed faith that's not logical or rational, and there's no evidence whatsoever for what you're believing, should you believe it? And they say no. I say like the Easter Bunny, right? You know, it's like there's no evidence for the Easter Bunny, but nobody believes it. You say there's no evidence for God, then why do we believe it? You know, when I try to get them just to start thinking about why do we believe these things, and um, then I give my whole talk on the existence of God and you know, evidence for God and that sort of thing. But I think our our teens and even our adults need this more in our life. So I'm glad that you're out there. I'm glad you're doing your work you're doing. And I'm glad you're helping provide answers for people who are searching, you know, and who are wondering. Well, I'm glad to do it because I'm grateful for the people who did it for me. Amen. Amen. And I remember uh, when I was in college, I cried because I got into a conversation with an atheist and I couldn't I guess, deal with her objections. And I just didn't know. And so I literally was like, I don't know the answers. And that's kind of what put me on my uh, C.S. Lewis search. And I mm. went and started researching everything and uh, ended up writing a book on the subject myself. And now I do what I do today to help. Because I don't, well, the biggest thing is that no one gave me answers. And I want to give people answers because when it makes sense and it's real, Jesus says it's true and the truth will set you free. So amen. You know, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your truth. And uh, thank you for Liam bringing her home. Uh, and I want to thank you for coming on our podcast today. We will link your uh, blog and your, any books that you have down below. Feel free to send them to me. So, you know, put them down there and we'll probably put this podcast up sometime uh, this week. Thank you so much. And thanks to my daughter for napping the whole time. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and uh, we'll be in touch soon. But thank you very much. And thank you all for watching. Thank you all for tuning in uh, all the time. Please check out our social media below. Check out our new Twitter, our new TikTok, Instagram, all that below if you haven't followed us yet. And for all those people who keep saying, why don't you get a Patreon? Why don't you get a PayPal? We already have one. Feel free to use it and support our ministry one time, monthly or yearly, especially now at the end of the year. We would love that to help our ministry continue. So thank you all for everything that you do to help our ministry reach millions of people around the world. God bless you all. And we'll be praying for you. Keep praying for us. God bless you all.